Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Ever since Russia invaded Ukraine in late February, one key diplomatic variable has been the stance of China. Of course, we'd expect that NATO, Europe, and the world's democracies would firmly align with Ukraine and seek to isolate Russia for this act of aggression. But China has played its cards sort of close to its chest. At the United Nations, for example, China neither firmly denounced Russia's aggression, nor did China give Russia any meaningful support, opting to abstain from resolutions condemning Russia's actions. My guest, Kaiser Kuo, calls China's stance thus far a kind of, quote, pro-Russian neutrality. He is the host of the Seneca podcast in the SupChina network, and we have a long conversation about what is informing China's approach to this international crisis. We kick off discussing the history of China-Russia relations and then dive deep into China's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. After listening to this conversation, you will no doubt be inspired to subscribe to Kaiser Kuo's Seneca podcast, and I've posted a link to his show in the show notes of this episode. So just a quick note to listeners out there, I'm going to take a little time off, but not to worry, I have lots of great fresh new content lined up for you in the coming week. So enjoy it. And finally, today's episode is produced in part through the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York. All right, and now here is my conversation with Kaiser Kuo, host of the Seneca podcast. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Could you maybe give listeners a sense of the kind of relationship Putin and she had prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? I'm going to do you one better and I'm going to go all the way back. I think, I think we need to actually take this back a little further than just she, she came into office in 2013. And uh, by then the China Russia relationship was already sort of on its present trajectory. So I want to take it back a little, a little further than that, if that's okay, Mark. Take me, take me back as far as you yeah, like. Yeah. All right. Well, we can go, go to the back. King Dynasty if you'd like. It's- <laughs> <laughs> no, no need to go back that far. Uh, so I think it's important to remember that from the time of the Sino-Soviet split, which began in earnest in, in 1960, no Soviet leader had even visited China until Gorbachev did in, in 89. He went there in the middle of the student demonstrations, if you recall. Actually, I, I was present in Tiananmen Square when he was there. Uh, Gorbachev's fate and you know China's own near-death experience in 89 were always linked in the minds of Chinese leaders. And so you know, Deng Xiaoping and later Jiang Zemin 
they regarded Boris Yeltsin as a feckless drunk. Uh, but from Gorbachev and then Yeltsin, they really drew a lot of important lessons uh, because, you know, this has been an obsession and it's especially an obsession with Xi Jinping is, is he he's dead set on avoiding the same fate as the Soviet Union. Right. So um, they drew a couple of important lessons. One was, you know, don't do glasnost before you do perestroika. Right. Don't uh, reform politics until you reform the economy. You want to be able to at least deliver people a decent living. So that's, that's one mistake. They, they they looked at Russia and said, well, don't privatize state-owned assets willy-nilly the way that Yeltsin did, because, you know, he created this class of rapacious oligarchs and, you know, a kleptocratic state. And finally, you know, don't submit to the kind of shock therapy being being prescribed by Western economists. So China sort of pats itself on the back for having avoided those things. Um, it really wasn't until the later stages of the the Yugoslav conflict, you know, after the breakup of, of Yugoslavia, especially the Kosovo War, uh, that China really started to find convergence, though, with Russia. And of uh, course, the, the NATO bombed China's embassy in Belgrade uh, during that war. It was a mistake, says NATO, but nonetheless, uh, you know, presumably informed China's response to the crisis. Absolutely did. It absolutely did. Um, and so, you know, I think I, I have yet to meet a Chinese person, uh, somebody born and raised in China, who believes that it was a mistake. I'm, uh, this is the, the question that I'll ask God when I finally meet him. That's one that I really want to know. Uh, what really happened with that bomb or those bombs? Um, anyway, but there, there was a respite, though, after that, I think, for, for both China and Russia during the early years of the so-called global war on terror. Um, you know, when the United States was very much distracted and both Russia and China were sort of enrolled in that war on terror um, for their own selfish reasons. Uh, but by t- 2007, uh, after we'd already seen you know, the Rose Revolution in Georgia in 03, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 04, the Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan in 05, uh, by 2007, though, you see a very changed Putin. Uh, he's, you know, he's smiting over NATO expansion already, of course, but especially over over these color revolutions. Um, I think that that um, when he gives that, you know, Munich conference speech in 2007, that's that's a, an important point. And shading into the year 2008, which was a really pivotal one for China, uh, because in March, China experienced this massive uprising, riots, as, as Beijing would describe them officially, in Lhasa and in other culturally Tibetan areas of China. And that sparked a lot of, of anti-Americanism, maybe surprisingly, just for the way that U.S. media outlets covered that. Uh, but on the other hand, you had, you know, Russia invaded Georgia over South Ossetia and Abkhazia in August. That was right during the Olympics, which really, frankly, pissed off Hu Jintao, uh, who was the, the uh, president of China at the time. And then, you know, just three weeks after the, the closing ceremony of, of those Olympics, uh, Lehman Brothers collapsed and the whole you know, financial system went into meltdown. So that was another I mean, important turning point for China. And I think it uh, it got them a whole lot more assertive and prickly almost immediately. And I think they saw things eye to eye much more with the Russians at that point. Um, and then in 2009, you have you know another couple of events that pushed China even still closer in worldview to, to this like newly militant Russia under Putin. Um, one was this big uprising in Xinjiang with riots in Urumqi. Uh, but there's also things like 
I mean, and people don't understand how, how this was read in China. The protests in Iran after the, the contested re-election of, of Ahmadinejad. The green, uh, the green. Yeah, protests, the green. Right? Yeah. Right. But, you know, significantly, they also called it the YouTube revolution. And, and they, you know, got in the habit of appending the name of an American social media product to every you know, revolution that happened, especially after the Arab Spring started in 2011. So, you know, Tahrir Square was the Facebook revolution. And, you know, there were various Twitter revolutions, right? Um, but this Describing is, presumably like American motives behind these, you know, very, you know, much, you know, um, um, organic protests in these countries. That's absolutely right. They, they always reached for the same boogeyman, um, you know, so for, for Putin, you have to remember in 2012, he had his own kind of near-death experience, all these massive protests against Putin. Um, and he blamed them on Hillary Clinton and our State Department and, you know, these organizations like the National Endowment for Democracy. And then, of course, George Soros, right? And so um, it's it's interesting because they, they start really reading from the same prayer book or singing from the same hymn book uh, by that point. Um, there's this really remarkable it was an internal party document that actually predates Xi's ascension as general secretary a few months later. Uh, it's called document number nine. I don't know if Mark, if you've heard of it, I've not enlighten me, please. This is great. It's, it's, it's fascinating. So it was leaked actually uh, the following year in 2013, you can really kind of read it as the party's diagnosis of, of what, what, what they need to watch out for in terms of, you know, how, the faith and authority of the party gets undermined, how, you know, color revolution takes hold, how peaceful uh, transfer, you know, how, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like a warning against the, the perils of democracy promotion by the United States. So it's, it's like, there's like seven deadly sins that it identifies and, and they're almost entirely about the pernicious influence of, of Western values and Western institutions. So, you know, constitutional democracy with its features like, you know, you know multi-party elections or separation of power or independent judiciary, um, the very idea of universal values, uh, civil society, you know, like NGOs, these, these are seen as, as you know, a deadly vector for, for this kind of thinking. Independent media, what they call, you know, Western style journalism, in other words, sort of adversarial journalism. Uh, so I think it's it's significant that um, this is happening. This comes out in you know 2012. This is the same year that Putin's facing his uh, big street protests again that he says are the you know, the, the machinations of of the evil Secretary of State Clinton and and so forth. So I think you know if you take a look out Beijing's windows and understand uh, what it l- looked like, you can see why it felt a- alignment with Russia during this time. And, you know, there is this kind of prevailing sense among, you know, those who, you know, are, are like China pundits or China watchers that China's foreign policy proceeds from like the assumption that like the goals of its foreign policy is to shore up like domestic stability and regime security. Uh, like, are you seeing like manifestations of of that uh, in terms of how how China is approaching Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. Yeah. So again, this, this is, this is one where I, I have this sort of ongoing debate with other people uh, about 2014 um, and, and how important that was. Cause I mean, I think you can look at 2014 and, and recognize that on the one hand, Beijing didn't uh, object strenuously, but on the other, 
it has not recognized Crimea still to the state. So this takes us up to you know the present. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that 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 this you know China's foreign policy ultimately is about shoring up its own. Uh, well, I, I don't think that it's suffering a crisis of legitimacy exactly right now. I mean, I think that um, regime support is actually at very very high levels currently. Uh, but I think it's important to, to look in, you know, taking the view out Beijing's windows and see what America has looked like from that subjective mm-hmm. vantage point. I mean, this isn't to say that, you know, how Beijing thing, sees things are, is, is correct or, or that I agree with it. But, um, you know, what it sees basically is over the last three years, um, four years, really. I mean, we can go even further back to the very beginning of the trade war that uh, the United States has uh, sought to kneecap China's tech uh, businesses. It's sought to basically drive Beijing onto its belly, right? Uh, You know, there's the trade war, this this tech cold war, um, the blaming of of Beijing for the COVID-19 pandemic. And then, you know, that series of of the lab leak claims that were Mm -hmm. deliberately meant to be conflated with bioweapons claims. And then, you know, all the the, the gratuitous insults that came from, from the presidential podium during Trump's administration. And then just the kind of profound disappointment that things didn't change much when Biden came into office. They really feel like uh, there's more and more people in in Beijing who are convinced that America, you know, irrespective of what party is in power, who holds Congress or who's in the the White House, the goal is to keep China down. So, uh you know, I follow the UN pretty closely or very closely. Um, and, you know, at the UN, China has avoided any really like, explicit denunciations of Russia, but it's also not, you know, firmly had Russia's back, opting instead to abstain from some key votes at uh, both the Security Council and the General Assembly. Uh, but you know, from what I'm hearing from you, I mean, is it fair to say that beyond the UN in these last two weeks, Beijing has more or less, you know, been siding with Moscow? And if so, like what have been sort of manifestations of like a strategy that seems to be developing in which um, Beijing is backing Moscow or not? Yeah, so that's that's obviously the million dollar question. Um, that's why I asked you. Right, right, right. <laughs> I, I I actually think that I would describe it as a kind of pro-Russian neutrality at this point. China is still trying to hedge, right? Um, you know, it is sanctions compliant so far and has signaled that it will be. It's done things like denied uh, the sale of, of airplane parts. It has uh, done things like provided limited and pretty modest uh humanitarian aid to Ukraine. We saw the ambassador to Ukraine make comments about the sort of um, the unity and the tenacity of Ukrainian fighters, which has pissed Moscow off pretty badly. It has uh, done things like flatly denied this claim that Russia had made a request of it for for military aid. There are other things that I think uh, are evidence of of China's hedging. where the rubber meets the road, I, I think, is is though in how it is talking about this to its own people. And I that think was going to be my next question. Yeah, like yeah. how is this conflict being portrayed in state-controlled media? Well, I mean, there. I look everything that I've been talking about. I mean, or everything you know, relative to this, 
uh, relevant to to the present crisis comes from conversations I've had with people who know a whole lot more than I do. And so here I'm going to be, you know, uh, referring to what Maria Repnikova has has told me in conversations I've had with her. She was just my guest on on the last podcast. She's somebody who has this sort of happy confluence of research interests where she uh, just published a book on Chinese soft power, but she is Russian born. Uh, she's actually born in Estonia, but she's a Russian speaker and, uh, and is also fluent in Chinese. She studies Chinese media. <laughs> she's published a book on the Chinese media system. So she, she's been watching this very closely. What, what's maybe surprising is how little attention has been paid to the war in the official media. There is sort of the equivalent of the CBS evening news during its heyday in Walter Cronkite's time, um, where, you know, it was the news everyone watches and that's on China central television, CCTV channel one, it's called Xinwen Lianbo, the, the evening news. And it's the Ukraine story has been relegated to minute 27 of a, of a 30 minute broadcast and has given, been given very, very, very short shrift. They, they would rather people not be thinking about this because they understand how divisive it is and how it doesn't serve Chinese ends right now to, you know, appear to take a side in it. Now, that said, I think what, what really matters is that they are censoring people who are, are making arguments that are too pro-Western and not censoring the more strident nationalists who are calling to, you know, for China to be all in with Russia. What does that suggest to you? Well, it suggests to me that that uh, they ultimately uh, look. I mean, look, this. I, I suppose it would be possible to kind of make up a balance sheet, right? Uh, to to look at what China, you know, what favors China, uh, what favors Russia, and what favors you, you know, the West or, or Ukraine. And and what I would put in in the pro Russia column, obviously, is that. You know, they want to stand up against American unipolar hegemony, right? They want to keep America strategically tied up in Europe and unable to really build up a presence in Asia, you know, for once again, the, the pivot to falter, right? That's in their strategic interest. They, they realize that failing to support Russia means strengthening the West uh, with the EU remaining very, very close in American orbit. In other words, if if Russia is ignominiously defeated in Ukraine, if its war aims are not met, we're going to see a, a, a sort of resurgent American-led order. And then, of course, there's hydrocarbons, oil and gas, and, and carbohydrates, right? Wheat. Um, you know, but, but on the other side of the ledger are, are many things. One of them is that the Russian economy is like only the 11th largest in the world. It is way down there in the list of, of Chinese trade partners. In fact, if you add up the EU and the United States, that comes to about uh, a little over $1.1 trillion uh, in annual trade. But Russia is only one-seventh of that. So, you know, they're, they're, so they're going to be sanctions compliant. They realize that sanctions could really hurt the Chinese economy, especially during this really crucial period where they're trying to do something um, it looks like they're they're putting it off, irrespective of, of of what's happening in Russia. But they're really trying to move China onto a very different economic footing right now, and that plan is is sort of stymied by the distraction of this war. 
Um, so they don't like that. They, they, of course, you know, China is constantly talking about the basic principle of territorial integrity and national sovereignty, right? And they see what Russia has done as a, a pretty unambiguous violation of that. So I guess what opportunities exist or are sort of elite Chinese foreign policy thinkers exploring opportunities that exist that would sort of use this crisis to sort of firmly establish China as the dominant world power. I'm sort of like kind of thinking back or, or, or perhaps comparing this moment potentially to like the Suez crisis of 1956 in which you mm-hmm. had the declining powers of, of um, the United Kingdom and France sort of get into like a misadventure in the Middle East. And it was like the United States who kind of sort of rescued uh, the situation. And in so doing, sort of firmly established the U.S. as like the power to be reckoned with and, and you know, forever sort of relegated Britain and, and to a lesser extent France as like declining old, old uh, imperial powers that are sort of feckless. You know, is this like the Chinese foreign policy established? have like the wherewithal to sort of assert itself in a way to help perhaps like negotiate or mediate uh, an end to this crisis in a way that sort of asserts China on the global stage in sort of any meaningful way? Well, the short answer is no. There are probably some people who have uh, kind of wildly overestimated China's capacity to do anything like that. But I think that that the majority of, of people in the foreign policy establishment in China understand that China's choices here are circumscribed, that it, its power is still limited. And it has seen many examples just in the last three weeks of exactly why that is so, not the least of which is just the incredible discursive power of the Western media. It has so shaped that narrative and in so shaping it, it has you know changed the way that uh, Brussels and individual European capitals have approached it. it has changed the whole sort of um, you know the way that that, that story has been told uh, globally and the way it's been understood. And and they're very keenly aware of that. They're also keenly aware of the power of sanctions. Now they they I think that. Prior to February 24th, it was still possible in Chinese policy circles to speak of toothless sort of, you know, impotent sanctions, right? Not, not, not anymore. So no, I don't think so. Uh, and, and I think that they realize that China is far away, that China would be seen as meddling in an affair that isn't really of its doing. And it would be seen, you know, because it had leaned, uh, to pro Russia. For during the, the run up to and in the immediate first few weeks of the war, it wouldn't be seen as a, uh, a a sort of trustworthy intermediary by certainly not by the West. Now there have been you, you occasional calls for China to step up and, and do something, but I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that uh, that Xi Jinping so overestimates China's capabilities in that way. So you use the phrase, and I love it, uh, pro-Russian neutrality as describing you know, China's approach to this crisis thus far. How sustainable do you see that position as being? And are there, you know, and what might like break that quote pro-Russian neutrality one way or the other? Right. 
I mean, that's again the other million dollar question. I'm making um, you a millionaire today. Yeah, here, no, I, I, this I, is I, great. I'm fantastic. All I'm, the questions your way. <laughs> I, I, um, so so there have been a number. Of, I think maybe the most most illustrative example is there's uh, a Shanghai based scholar uh, by the name of Hu Wei who published a really interesting piece that circulated pretty widely in Chinese and then was translated into English by the Carter Center in Atlanta. Carter Center's uh, U.S.-China Perception Monitor. And uh, it basically calls for China to come off the fence in the direction of the West, for China to break its ties with Putin. Now, it has been pretty widely savaged in China, uh, where, where it has been allowed to circulate, surprisingly, uh, but only because I think the, the the judgment was that it had enough holes in it that it wasn't really going to be taken too seriously. Uh, but I think it is indicative that there are plenty of people, especially uh, people in the sort of soft-handed, uh, you know, po- policy, you know, the, the academic policy community who really would like to see China uh, get off the fence on the Western side rather than getting off the fence onto, onto the, the, the Russian side. I, I, there are, again, people who would challenge the decision that they're even on the fence. I mean, one guest that I've had, Evan Feigenbaum, is, is very clear on that. He, he does not believe that China is on the fence. He thinks that China's you know, sanctions compliance was a given. They don't get credit for that. Um, I, don't, I don't fully agree with him. I think that, that they're, at least in, in its own mind, China believes itself to be still sort of on a fence. Uh, I think that they realize that the longer they wait, the less options they have. Uh, but they also see a possibility where waiting this out without taking the side uh, yields the most, you know, positive outcome for China in the long term anyway, where they see uh, Russia emerge from this with what it wanted before. February 24th anyway, that is with a Ukraine that is avowedly neutral, that does not join NATO and promises not to for the foreseeable future, uh, where, uh, you know, Russian quote unquote legitimate security interests are taken seriously. Uh, and where it still sees that as the, uh, a possible wedge to keep uh, NATO NATO's members, constituent members, sort of divided from one another. So what it worries about most is an outcome that puts the EU and the United States firmly together under sort of American hegemonic dominion. Uh, Yeah, so I I would love to see, I mean, me personally, I mean, being kind of an unalloyed liberal myself, I would love to see China come off the fence in in, uh, the right direction. Unfortunately, I just don't see that as as a, a likely outcome. Um, so there's this perception I sense in American policy circles that Chinese policy officials and Chinese officials are viewing Russia's invasion of Ukraine through like the prism, the lens of Taiwan. Um, I mean, is does that strike you as as true? And what's more broadly the takeaway for China, China um, vis-a-vis Taiwan in terms of like Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Yeah, so I think that there were a lot of 
kind of hot takes immediately. And this began well before February 24th. A lot of hot takes that say, oh, well, this for China is, is entirely about Taiwan. Now, I think it would be foolish for us to think that 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 hasn't crossed the minds of Chinese leaders. But I think that the kinds of of, of you know, direct parallels to the situation are not accurate in the least. Uh, China doesn't conceive of it as a similar situation. It really does, in its heart of hearts, believe that Taiwan is an internal matter, uh, rightly or wrongly. Uh, I think that uh, if anything, if there's any lesson that's being drawn right now, uh, if if there's any direction in which Beijing is being pushed vis-a-vis the Taiwan issue, it's away from adventurism right now. They, they, I think it's fully on display, the kind of moral opprobrium uh, and how quickly that would translate into uh, not just sanctions, but, you know, full on embargoes, the pain that China would, would be made to suffer. I think that all along, Xi, by virtue of the fact that he has arrogated to himself so much decision-making authority, singular decision-making authority on that matter, he knows that if things go badly on such an adventure, he has nobody else to blame. And it is absolutely the end of his political career. Whereas all he need do is repeat, you know, the occasional mantra about, you know, the inviolability of China's claim on Taiwan. And he can keep nationalists satisfied, throw them a little red meat once in a while. He faces no threat to his, his rule by not acting, whereas he faces an enormous risk if he does act with very little upside. So I, I think that we're safe. Look, anyone who's looked at the situation, I, I would suggest listening to what Bonnie Glazer has to say. Uh, mm-hmm. She's at the German Marshall Fund, was formerly at CSIS and has been looking at this, uh, knows you know the disposition of Chinese forces really well, knows that, that she is not planning anything like that. I think it's really irresponsible for a lot of news outlets to report uh, Chinese uh planes that fly through the ADIZ, which, by the way, you know, actually includes part of mainland China, um, as, as you know, conflating those with overflights of Taiwan, which is not what's happening at all. They're happening mm-hmm. far to the southwest of that. So, um, all right. No, yeah. no, that's fair enough. It, it's just, you know, as you said, there was this slew of hot takes, and I feel yeah. like it's still a persistent um, perception that China is exclusively sort of interpreting or a dominant frame in which China is interpreting events in Ukraine is through um, its its positions on, on Taiwan. And, and I, I take your point. I figured that not to be correct, but hearing directly from you uh, is is certainly helpful. Well, that said, there is one area where I think Taiwan really does matter right now. I think if you look at the readout, especially the Chinese version of the readout from the the, the meeting that just took place in Rome on Monday between Jake Sullivan and Yang Jiechi, uh, you know, most of it is about Taiwan. And you sort of flick at Korea, North Korea and, and Ukraine in the last sentence or in the last paragraph of the readout. Is that in the State Department readout or the Chinese government? It's in the Chinese the Chinese government's huh. readout. Interesting. The State Department readout is very, very short, considering that it was a seven hour meeting. Uh it's it's actually possibly a good sign that it was so short. Uh but when I when I look at that readout, one thing that that where my mind goes instantly is that I think that Yang and and China are angling for carrots. Uh, to get them off the fence. I think that that in their mind, 
the right inducement um, to get China to actually play a more constructive role in this would be uh, sort of a, a, an explicit statement on Taiwan and end to the salami slicing that they see as having happened uh, across the Trump administration, especially in the last couple of years with Pompeo, and especially in the last months, the kind of policy turds that that Pompeo left on the lawn of of the the, the Taiwan Straits issue, um, and I, I I really worry uh, that they they think they can ex- extract those sorts of concessions uh, in in uh, in exchange for a more cooperative posture in the Ukraine crisis. So lastly, in the coming you know, weeks or months even, could you foresee any decisions that Beijing will have to make or other inflection points that might suggest to you how China will evolve in its approach to Russia? You know, for example, um, you know, might Russia come to China to seek some sort of bailout or from some support in order to shore up uh, Russia's own crumbling economy. And at that point, will China have to like make a decision about whether or not to buy, I don't know, like Russian gold or, or something like that? Yeah, I think that that's, that's exactly the kind of, of, of decision point that, that Russia might force on, on China. Um, and I think they dread that. They're looking, of course, very, very carefully at the, the course of the conflict itself which changes day to day. I think there, there's no doubt in my mind that they are watching everything that's happening, every skirmish, every battle, uh, you know, every every Russian military action. And they're keeping a very, very close eye on what's happening in the peace talks, although they probably have no role in it whatsoever. Uh, no, it, it's looking like at least, I don't know how good faith it is, but it looks like they're converging on a set. I mean, it's been reported. You saw it in the FT yesterday and, uh, elsewhere uh, that that there is sort of on the table now a, a solution that involves well all it's almost sort of a status quo ante but with a a, a vow of nato neutrality or of of a ukrainian uh neutrality and uh, uh commitment not to join nato now i i think that uh the, the uh, other you know i think we need to think about the other things that complicate China's relationship with Russia. And we don't think about this probably enough. Uh, one is India um, and another is Vietnam, both of whom are recipients of, of substantial Russian military aid, but who are kind of traditional uh, antagonists of China, right? Hmm. You know, um, it, it's, it's not an uncomplicated relationship. Uh, you can point to Central Asia and see a lot of sort of, you know, Russia and China have been largely copacetic there, but uh, there are other areas where it's it's not easy to to see how it will it, it will evolve. So all of these things are factors in 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 Beijing's thinking. Uh, well, Kaiser, this was so helpful. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. It's a real pleasure. And you have uh, at least one new subscriber to your podcast. Can can you take a, a minute just to to plug and, and tell the listeners uh, about your show? Sure. Uh, so I actually run a network of, of podcasts. It's called the Seneca Network, and it can be found on subchina.com. But our flagship show, which has been running since April 1st of 2010. So we're really- Oh my gosh, great. you predate me. 
Yeah, coming uh, on, up on, on our, April twenty fourteen. Wow. Uh, well, there yeah. there are few uh, who are older than I. That's great. No, go go right ahead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we started the show when I was still living in Beijing. Uh, then we were acquired by by Sub China, which was a fledgling news outlet, which has allowed us to really spread our wings. And uh, we moved the show to the United States, and I, I moved here in twenty sixteen. And the show is it's a current affairs show. It's a weekly show, interview format, usually uh, anywhere from an hour to, to an hour and a half. And uh, we bring on everyone from. Um, Diplomats. We've had people like Kurt Campbell. We've had former heads of government like Kevin Rudd on the. Yeah, he's been on my show too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I see. You've got quite a roster of of great (laughs) people. You've had Fareed Zakaria, who's just fantastic. Uh, You, you, yeah. I I envy uh, a lot of the guests that you've had. Maybe we can we can swap intros. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Yeah, well. I'll post a link to your show in the show notes of the episode. So people who are listening to this now have an easy way to access your show, which I really look forward to listening to regularly. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll, you'll hear, you know, listen to all the shows that I've done on Ukraine and, and China where I've stolen everything that I've just said. <laughs> well, that's what I do. And whenever I get interviewed, which is always awkward, because I'm like the person usually interviewing people. I always refer back to the insights of people I interviewed. So I, exactly. I, I get it. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. That's great, Kaiser. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Kaiser. That was great. I am now a proud subscriber of the Seneca podcast and recommend you all do as well. Looking forward to being a listener. All right. We'll see you soon. As I said at the outset, I'm taking a little time off, but I have lots of fresh new content for you in the interim. So uh, nothing should change from your perspective. But if you reach out to me, I might be slow to respond. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.